स्मार्ट यू आर लिसनिंग टू अमिंट प्रोडक्शन हेलो एंड वेलकम यू आर लिसनिंग टू द स्केच आई एम योर होस्ट श्रुतिजित आई एम ए डेली बेस्ड जर्नलिस्ट एंड द एडिटर इन चीफ ऑफ मिंट In India when we hear the name Natwest we associate it with one of our great sporting moments we are taken back to the sweet sweet memories of the 2002 Natwest series final where India chased down 326 runs the biggest ODI target in its history till then to defeat Nasir Hussain's England two of our great cricketing stars Yuvraj Singh and Mohammad Kaif were born on that day the image of captain saurav ganguly's shirtless celebration in the lord's pavilion was splashed on the front page of every indian newspaper the next day and became emblematic of a newly aggressive nation remember this is way before virat kohli corona miss they're going to get back for two india are home lords goes wild attention to lead in the indian dressing room now they played the best cricket in this series Ganguly with his shirt off flint off style this time Mohammed Kaif not out 87 India have won the Natwest series final by 2 wickets The Natwest series is named after Natwest one of the UK's top banking institutions Apart from Natwest Bank the group comprises of several banking brands known around the world including the Royal Bank of Scotland which used to have a retail presence in India the Ulster Bank in Ireland and Coots famous as the Queen's Bank for having the royal family of UK as clients my guest today and it's a real privilege to have her with us is the global ceo of natwest alison rose she joined the bank as a fresh graduate and has worked there for more than 3 decades and rose to become the first woman to lead a british lender when she was named to the position in 2019 She's among the top chief executives in banking in the world today. I hope to speak with her today about the state of the global economy, the digital disruption in banking, the Rose Review, an exercise she leads for the British government to review the state of women entrepreneurship. And particularly I am interested in asking her who she thinks might become the next British Prime Minister. Alison, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the sketch. Thank you very much it's lovely to be here. Thank you. Let me let me first come to your business in India. Your organization doesn't anymore have a customer facing business in India, but you employ more than 14,000 people here um in your global capability centers which support your customers around the world and particularly in the UK. Tell us more about this operation. What brings you to India right now and what are your future plans for this market? Yes it's um it's great to be here and it's uh the first time I've been able to get here since the pandemic so it's fantastic to catch up with all of my colleagues and as you say it's a, a huge presence we have here this is really the hub for our technology and innovation um we have 14000 colleagues over 50% of them are in technology supporting what is a, a significant transformation we're running across NatWest group um we're 2 years into a 3 billion investment program 80% of that is being 
spent on data, digital and technology. Um, and so our hub here, you know, 50% of people on technology really driving innovation, transformation, support of our customer journeys um, and making sure we're really using technology and data to drive the future of banking. That's amazing. Um, so, so you're here to catch up with your colleagues. Anything you're able to say about what are your future plans for this market? Do you hope to ever return to India with a consumer-facing presence? No, I think our, our focus here is is very much on creating this hub for technology and data. It's a core part of our business. Um, actually, last year, we celebrated our 100-year anniversary of being in India. And I was talking to the team last night over dinner, and I said, well, here's to the next 100 years. So it's a core part of our investment in continuing to drive technology and data, but very much supporting the whole group. So RBS was here for 100 years. How how was your presence in India 100 years old? I was not aware of this. Um, Well, we, part of um, RBS, we acquired ABN and they always had a presence here. So Ah, um, as a bank, we have a long history. um, uh, But yes, 100 year anniversary last year. Yeah, that's true. ABN was among the earliest banks to to set up here. Alison, tell us about the scope of your operations, all your various different brands and, and what all exactly uh, does your company do? Yeah, NatWest Group is one of the largest retail and commercial banks in the UK. We're the largest business bank supporting uh, business customers from entrepreneurs up to global multinationals. We have, we're the third largest retail bank in the UK and we have um, operations in um, New York, in Singapore, um, in Japan and in Europe. We have a number of brands, as, as, as you mentioned, NatWest Group, World Bank of Scotland, almost 300 years old, um, Ulster Bank in Ireland and Coots Bank, which is one of the best private banks in the world, um, focusing on uh, wealth management. So it's quite a diverse group, um, one that is really focused on supporting our customers. We launched a purpose-led strategy um, when I took over in in 2019 and making sure that we're building long-term value for our customers, our shareholders and our communities. About 80% of our businesses in the UK um, supported globally um, helping our customers thrive. Amazing. Um, You just announced your results for the latest quarter. Uh, Could you take us through the highlights of your financial performance? Yeah, very strong financial performance. Um, We announced um, 2.8 billion of operating profits, a 16% increase in income, and our quarter one ratio, one of the strongest in Europe, um, at around 15%. So really continuing delivering good performance. We're a safe, stable bank. We're a growing bank, growing in lots of areas, good improvements in customer performance, and making sure that we're a critical part of supporting the economy and our customers through whatever the times are ahead. But um, we were really pleased with the results. They they continue to show strong momentum um, as we continue our transformation. You became the CEO of the bank where you have worked uh, practically all of your adult life in 2019. And then soon after, the world sort of plunged into an unprecedented crisis. Can you tell us a little bit about what was that like? What is the whole experience of leading uh, this major institution through an unprecedented crisis that nobody had a playbook for. Uh, What was that like? 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was certainly not in our plan. Um, I stood up in on February the fourteenth in twenty twenty and announced our new purpose led strategy and and vision for the bank. And and two weeks later was you know putting the whole bank into lockdown and asking you know fifty to sixty thousand colleagues to work from home. I, I think you know really unprecedented crisis global health pandemic, which obviously had devastating effects around the world, and so getting the organisation to pivot to working remotely, to continue to support our customers, to make sure that we could continue to support the economy during that time was was clearly challenging. Um, and I think it's often in those crisis moments that the true culture of an organisation comes to the fore. And, and what I saw was an amazing an amazing response from all of my colleagues who really focused on supporting customers, whether it was, you know, colleagues of mine in Edinburgh, where our head office is, who turned the head office into a, a food bank, or the incredible support for our colleagues here in India, um, and the volunteering that went on to support them as, as we went through the crisis. But, you know, it was a really unprecedented time. And what you saw was people really working together, supporting each other, supporting colleagues, supporting customers, and continuing to make sure um, that they really delivered on, on what we set out to do. So, you know, very challenging time for lots of people, but I think it also brought people really close together as well. Everybody's experience during that period was very different. For some people were working remotely, was a really life-affirming moment and for others it was terribly isolating. Uh, people faced devastating impacts on their personal life and yet were still committed to their professional lives helping customers. So not something I would have chosen but really proud of all my colleagues how they rallied during that really difficult time. And um, you know when such a thing happens when you have to um, shift practically overnight to working from home in a large operation like yours, with a lot of sensitive areas, trading, you know, a lot of emphasis on security, digital security, ring fencing certain operations, firewalls, um, did you then have to get involved in operational aspects of the bank more than you might have expected to when you took over as CEO? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the priority was keeping the bank safe and secure Um protecting our customers during that time so very very heavily involved in the operational side and you know that's where you know plans around incident management come into place so our security team you know worked really closely to make sure technology was deployed to everyone that we could work effectively from home but still securely so there were lots of decisions being made on a very rapid basis in order to make sure that we could protect people and continue to serve people and, and work in a very different way. So it was a very, very intense period. Um, and, you know, certainly running a bank from, you know, your your office at home and my, as it was in my case, my dining room table um, <laughs> was a different experience. And Le Leading a major multi-billion dollar financial institution from your dining from table. From my dining table, as well as helping my children do <laughs> their lessons online. I mean, it was, it was certainly different. Right. But, you know, uh, great colleagues and really rose to the challenge and I think in those circumstances, you you have to prioritise what's the most important work together and, and make sure that you're really available in order to make those really, really rapid decisions um, with as much information as you can. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about the role that your technology backbone that is based out of India uh, might have played in that transition because you might have needed VPNs, all kinds of very quick transition into a work, remote working environment. 
um what can you tell us about the uh, the role that your colleagues in india played yeah colleagues in india played an enormous role we would not have been able to run the bank had our technology um infrastructure and teams been able to support all of our colleagues to be able to re- work remotely so there was you know a great effort to make sure that technology was delivered to people at home that um they could access um the right support to make sure that the infrastructure could operate globally that we were able to prioritize and put in security very quickly for remote working and and I think you know what we saw was also a rapid adoption and acceleration by our customers of digitization and technology in order to support them so the the data and scanning that we had really enabled us to continue to serve our customers and you know 10 years ago you could have never imagined you could deliver that scale of change but it was really phenomenal from our technology team who really came to the fore in order to support customers and colleagues and obviously the stability and the global security of the bank um and the economy yeah your support um, functions that are run out of india uh, probably plays a significant role in in both being cost effective as well as it being um, uh, you know very competent operation in supporting your technology needs and your customers but also very really um, in many parts of the western world especially in the us but also in the uk there is some pushback that ceos are facing against outsourcing and against offshoring of these jobs um do you face uh, such pushback is that a political issue in the uk no it hasn't been um and and certainly because our india team is such an integrated part of our operation and our business you know it it's been a huge part of of what we do and the talent that we have here in technology and data engineers and data scientists is really a core part of our strategy we we have an international hub strategy it's really supporting supporting that so what we have here is real high value work and and contribution so we we face no challenges of that it's always been an integrated part of our our offering The UK economy is facing um, I mean it's it's going through a very interesting moment isn't it uh, inflation is high interest rates have already jumped from 0.25% last year to 1.25% today um, in fact as we speak uh, the bank of england uh, sometime during uh, today uk time is going to make further announcements it's expected to raise interest rates again um, it is expected that by the end of the year your interest rates could even hit 2.5% um what is your outlook for the uk economy yeah i mean we're we're definitely entering a, a different economic cycle and high inflation high interest rates um you know the impact of some of the global political issues with the war in ukraine has clearly affected energy prices so we're seeing high inflation fiscal intervention as as you mentioned with interest rates going up and you know that's a that's a challenge for lots of households and families and businesses in the UK who've been operating really for the last 10 to 15 years in a low inflation low interest rate environment um However, you've also got the dynamic that we've got full employment and high level of vacancies as well. So, it's an interesting dynamic that's happening at the moment. Our our outlook is it it presents a challenge for growth. I mean, we in May our GDP figures were were positive and and continue to be, but I think that high inflation, high energy prices 
high cost of living is is going to affect disposable income, potentially business confidence. So I think, you know, going into a lower growth environment um, and seeing what that fiscal policy will be. Um, certainly, we expect inflation to persist and that presents for me, challenges for our customers. So what we're trying to do is make sure we reach out to customers and help them deal with problems they haven't had to deal with for a long time. For a lot of small businesses, they've never run a business in an inflationary environment. So, you know, my job and the job of all my bankers is to give people help and support to manage through what is a different economic cycle that we're moving into. Actually, as we speak, I'm realising that you've had a really action-packed stint because Brexit also happened during during your time. Um, talk through us uh, uh, perhaps a little bit about uh, what was that like and how did it impact your business and what kind of adjustments you had to make in your operations subsequently? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's definitely been a, a, a full agenda for me as the CEO. I mean, obviously, Brexit... Um, was something that was voted on uh, by um, in, in a referendum. My my focus and what that meant for my business was we actually had to prepare for what we described as a hard Brexit. Um, and there was a real challenge to get people to think and businesses to think about what impact that potentially had for trade volumes. You know, we as banks had to um, make sure that we were prepared for the loss of licences if that happened. You know, we have European operations as well and making sure we could still operate so a lot of a lot of planning and making sure we could support customers through that transition um, and then you know brexit once it was finally implemented which really uh, made people think about supply chain and what they would do was very closely followed by the pandemic so there's been quite a run of things that we've had to deal with uh, to go back Alison to the present uh, economic moment in the UK um, you probably talk to a lot of CEOs, you have close relations with a um, lot of top uh, UK business leaders, um, who, you know, who are both your customers, uh, but also otherwise, I'm sure they seek your counsel on various matters. What is the mood like? And, and what are their top anxieties at this point? Yeah, I mean, it, it really varies. When I talk to um, businesses from, from very small to very large up and down the country, it really is, you know, being able to plan and deal with what, what this will mean for their business, whether it is their supply chain, whether it is their input costs, um, you know, how they will how they will cope with rising energy costs and what that will mean for their business model. You know, one of the biggest challenges that lots of business owners talk to me about is access to skills and labour. Um, you know, particularly in in a world that is changing so rapidly, that that is a challenge. And also, what you know, how long inflation will persist, what the outlook for um, interest rates is going to be. So, you know, that those are generally the issues that we're we're talking about, and how you navigate that economic cycle. It's a very interesting dynamic because there's lots of liquidity still sitting in the system, whether that's on personal household balance sheets or business balance sheets. There was a lot of stimulus from quantitative easing and from the government support that was put in place as a result of the pandemic. So a lot of businesses are sitting with healthy balance sheets, but uncertainty about the future and the outlook and decisions of when they invest and how they invest are clearly challenges. So I try and spend a lot of my time talking to business owners, to key stakeholders, to key partners and charity organisations so that we can provide the right support at the right time. The US economy, the largest in the world, is already in a technical recession. Is the global economy staring at a recession? I think it's. Um, we're definitely looking at, at lower growth. And I think, 
clearly the geopolitical issues are having an impact. You know, energy security is now a big conversation that a lot of people are dealing with at the same time as, you know, we're grappling with the climate emergency. Um, and I think you are seeing, you know, different shifts happening across the global economy. Um you know, certainly when I look at the UK, I, I, I see a lower growth environment. But I think there are dynamics which are also positive around full employment and high levels of liquidity. So, you know, whether it is a recession or a lower growth or, you know, a faster recovery, I think it's it's too early to say at this point. On energy security, has it been a strategic error for Europe to not secure their energy um, interests sooner and be caught out in this kind of a manner um, to be so dependent on Russia with whom it's been quite clear for a while now um, that you know ties could uh, deteriorate pretty rapidly uh, with the kind of leadership um, that, that Russia has and with the kind of uh, you know none of this is that new um, but it appears now that nobody really, uh, you know, ring fenced their interests and secured their um, their energy pipelines, and is now uh, caught out in in quite a bad way. Yeah, I mean, I think that the question of energy security has really, you know, come into to profile fully, um, and you know, lots lots of nations are now very very vulnerable. I think the escalation of the situation with the invasion of Ukraine and then the impact of the sanctions on Russia and what what that's meant has has really led to some vulnerability and and brought very firmly into the forefront the need to make sure your energy is diversified. The shift to low carbon but also that security issue i think is is a real challenge and we know if we look at what's happening in germany the risk of blackouts later on in the year because of their dependence on um, gas supplies from russia is a real challenge so i, I think it has has brought very firmly into um, the political and economic agenda the need for people to have energy security you've been at the bank um during multiple crises it has faced in the past, including the 2008 financial crisis, post which um, uh, the UK government threw a bailout, one of your largest uh, shareholders. I want to know two things. Number one is today, as a major shareholder in, in the bank, uh, what has been the government's or what is the government's mandate to you as CEO? Number two, how do you rate these crises? I mean, I know it's a hard one, but compared with uh, I mean, talk us through what the 2008 crisis was like for the bank. Perhaps you have less of a vantage, uh, had less of a vantage then than you have now uh, as the leader of the bank. What was COVID like? And what do you worry about the current economic moment? And if it were to deteriorate, what would that be like for a crisis? So first is the government's mandate to you and then the ratings of crisis. Yeah, I mean, we the, the government is, is our largest shareholder. When I took over, they were... Um, a 62% shareholder of the bank, and they're now below 50%. They they've been a, you know, a very good shareholder. Um, they don't they don't sit on our board. Um, they don't um, interrupt or get involved in strategy. They own their shares on an arm's length basis, and they're very committed to returning the bank into private ownership, which I'm very committed to delivering for them as well. Um, and so that you know, my focus is making sure that I deliver a 
a valuable bank that is valuable to all shareholders, which allows the government to sell down its stake um, over time. So, is, is, there, is there a glide path to that? that yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's up to them in terms of deciding when they sell, when they get uh, you know good value for for their stock. But for example, you know, my half year results um, this year, I announced a you know 1.75 billion special dividend. You know, in the first half, we've um, announced uh, 3.3 billion of return of capital to shareholders of which 2 billion of that will go to the government so a big relief we know that the uk government needs that money right now (laughs) so but they've been you know a very a very good and stable shareholder of the bank and you know they are committed to returning us to private ownership and, and we're committed to that as well um, I think in terms of your other questions around, you know, the various different economic crises and, and the global financial crisis, uh, I think one thing that, that you know, I certainly learned and has, has shaped my approach is, you know, when, when banks are not in a stable and secure position, we have a really important role that we play in delivering capital and liquidity into the economy and you know we have an important role that we play in people's lives whether that is helping them buy a home or helping entrepreneurs and when when banks are not in a stable and secure position you know we can do harm and you know for me that period was was devastating you know the bank was um the bank had to be bailed out by the government there was a global economic um crisis and and i saw the devastating impact that had on our customers and my colleagues and you know i think that really shaped you know my decision around you know the purpose led strategy that i now have which banks are valuable and important members of society we have a really important role to play but we are in service of our customers and our shareholders and our communities and our colleagues and it's really important that the bank is safe and secure which is why we have one of the strongest core tier one ratios which means you know when the world went into the global pandemic we were able to deploy capital to support the government bailouts of schemes to support businesses to help families keep going and that's what a bank should be valuable members of society creating long-term value so a very devastating time, very difficult. Um, and, you know, part of, you know, what I wanted to do was be there to help support the recovery of the bank and, and build value for the future. And and in comparison, you would say that uh, COVID wasn't that much of a crisis. Uh, and do you worry that what we could see going forward, especially if the macroeconomic difficulties and the war, etc., persists, um, is there any scenario in which you could witness a crisis of similar magnitudes? No, I, th- I mean, I think I think COVID was clearly a, a, a health crisis globally. Um, and, you know, that presented really significant challenges. We effectively shut the economy down for, you know, six months, 12 months and, and had to really intervene and support, you know, our customers during that period. We, we were big lenders into small businesses through the government schemes, um, to really help the economy keep going. But, you know, as I look forward, banks are in a very different position to the ones they were during the global financial crisis. You know, they, you know, the regulatory environment was all about supporting banks and making sure they were strong and safe and stable. And I think what the pandemic showed was that in a crisis, the banks are not part of the crisis, they're there to help. And I think as we go into, you know, another economic cycle, whatever that may be, 
you know, the banks are well positioned to support, and certainly my strategy as a relationship-led bank is support our customers through good time, bad times, and through the long term. And so stability and security, you know, the stress testing, the capital buffers, all of those things mean the UK banking system is very robust, very secure, and well positioned to weather what comes ahead. Alison, uh, let's talk about the uh, the dividends you just paid back to your shareholders. Two billion pounds in dividends. Um, a lot of CEOs might have at this stage been compelled to preserve that capital, but but you chose to pay these dividends. What gives you this optimism uh, about the future? Yeah, we've 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 got a very capital generative business. So when I look at NatWest Group, we we have strong, robust franchises that are growing, sixteen percent growth in income in the in the first half of the year. We're well diversified from a risk perspective. Ninety three percent of our book is secured. Um, we're generating capital on a, a, a very regular basis. You know, we have excess capital that we're investing in growth two years into a three billion investment plan, and I still have excess capital beyond that. So, you know. Making sure as I build the bank and invest in the bank, I have sufficient capital to share with shareholders, to invest in the business, which makes a better experience for my customers, and capital generative business and robust levels of capital so I can withstand, you know, stresses ahead. So balancing all of those needs and thinking forward is is why I'm comfortable to deploy capital. And, you know, with the risk diversification we have in our business you know, 13 to 14% core tier one ratio is what we're targeting and we're generating capital well in excess of that. That's amazing. Um, Two other major themes that I want to cover in this conversation and we'll go sequentially. First, I want to talk about digital disruption, the changing nature of relationship between uh, the customer and the bank. And I think when you talked about the financial crisis, uh, your passion for banking as, a, as an enterprise really shone through. Um, so I want to talk about the evolving relationship between the customer and the bank, digital disruption, fintechs, all of that. And then I want to come to one of the areas that is close to your heart, uh, which is um, uh, diversity, inclusion, supporting um, uh, female entrepreneurs um, and ESG-related themes. Let me come to uh, fintech and digital disruption first. One of the um, one of my favorite comments on on the rise of fintech that I encountered um, on Twitter was uh, that the entire fintech industry is uh, is a consequence of the failure of banks to hire good graphics designers. Okay. <laughs> it's you know, certainly facetious, but is there an element of truth um, at the heart of it? Well, look, I think the rise of fintech is, um, is, is really exciting. You're seeing new innovation, new technology, you know, a, a much more customer-focused way of dealing with customers. And I think it has, you know, made big banks and, you know, the industry really raise their game. And I think that's really good. That's for the benefit of customers. I look at a lot of fintechs and, you know, I see how they interact with their customers in a much more connected and human way. And we, we really learn from that. And, you know, I, I take the view that fintechs are competitors and partners. And we, we increasingly partner with fintechs and, and some of their great ideas that they have are, are helping us innovate. So I think, um, you know, it's a sign of development of technology, but also more competition and, and more support for customers. And the more choice customers have, the better. So I, I, relish, I relish the opportunity to learn, to compete and partner with fintechs. But you're also, from what I, uh, what I know, 
uh, very committed to keeping the bank uh, as a, a super digitally friendly uh, uh, tell us about some of your initiatives in in that regard yeah absolutely i mean well i think we describe ourselves as a digital bank for a relationship age and 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 that's really important what we're seeing is really rapid adoption of um digitization and so we're investing very significantly in digitizing our experience our customer journeys using technology and innovation using data to help personalize um the approach for customers and um NatWest is a you know a, a, a huge bank um but when i look at our retail banks 60% of our customers are entirely digital so we really are truly a digital a digital bank and 80 to 90% of our customers needs are met digitally and and this shows the really rapid adoption of um digital and the way customers want to interact and do their business with us um so we're investing in not just you know we have one of the best mobile apps in the market um but we're also investing in our end to end processes so banking should be seamless and a great experience for customers in using new technologies to enable us to do that so you know a digital bank that's what we are supporting a broad range of customers from you know the 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 smallest businesses and startups to the most sophisticated from families and households and people um to help them you know do banking in the way that enables and empowers their lives and that's that's where we're investing a lot of our money so if banks like yours and if large financial institutions got really really good at doing digital um will the fintech industry basically disappear no because i think there's great innovation happening in in the fintech space and uh, i think that will always continue uh, as customer needs change as as people's behaviors change and they want to do business in a really different way now and i think increasingly you can see people wanting to do business on you know whatsapp or tiktok or different platforms or ecosystems or you know there's the metaverse and all these different ways that the world is changing i think innovation will will always continue and i think that's that's really inspiring and really exciting I think the challenge for a lot of fintechs is getting to scale and getting to profitable models. Um and and that's why partnership for us with fintechs is is brilliant because we have, you know, 19 million customers that we, you know, look after every every single day um who we're serving. Whereas fintechs have great technology and great service and maybe just, you know, monoline or different elements. And so if we can access our customer base to the great innovations that fintechs have, you know, we can bring the best to together so you know what are one of the key parts of my strategy for the bank is very much a partnership model um i think learning to work with fintechs and bringing the best services in for our customers is is the future of banking something you said about your retail banking share in in digital uh, and digital caught my caught my attention you said that 60% of your customers in your retail banking operations are digital customers in the sense that does that mean they were acquired digitally and they don't have any physical interface with your bank apart from perhaps atms um it it means that they are interacting as in, with a, with us entirely digitally so they will be using the app they will be you know um they won't be using our branch unlikely to be using our call center they might be using cora which is our um chatbot that we have so all of their interaction is digitally on their mobile um and so no physical interaction at all and that is a sign of how customers want to interact and do business 
business with us. So they they might be taking their mortgage out entirely digitally uh, with us. They might be investing through our Coots asset management business where they can invest with NatWest Invest and invest for their family's future or open their accounts straight through processing. So it's an entirely digital bank. Alison, uh, younger people today are reviled by many as being financially irresponsible. Um, in your um, understanding, are, are younger folks today, millennials, younger millennials, uh, Generation uh, X, Z, um, are they responsible with their money? Are they saving enough or are they spending too much on eating avocado toasts? <laughs> um, well, I, I think there is a, a, a need to build financial confidence and capability. Um, one, of, one of our purpose-led approaches is very much around, you know, building people's financial confidence. And as, as anyone knows, being, being confident about your money and, and being able to plan for the future is, is really empowering and it enables people to fulfill their dreams and their aspirations, whatever they may be. So I, I think we need to do a better job as, as banks. Certainly, I see that as, as something we should do, which is helping young people learn about money and not be frightened by it. Or, you know, still there's a social stigma about talking about wealth or money or getting into debt. Um, and so the more that we can empower people to feel confident about their finances and the different things they can do, I think that is better. But, you know, I don't think that is that is a criticism we should put on young people. I think young people are, you know, rapid adopters of new technology, um, you know, increasingly entirely digital. They move between different platforms. You know, there is the gaming approach, tokenization. So I think they're driving, you know, different challenges and behaviour. But I do think sort of globally they're definitely needs to be more investment in building financial capability, financial confidence, because I think that empowers people. And that is something that we should really make sure we're doing. Is there any fintech that you've encountered anywhere in the world that has particularly impressed you where you thought, man, that's really ingenious. That's a marvelous idea. Oh, gosh, lots. I mean, lots and lots. Uh, you know, I think if you, you know, lots of different things. I mean, if you look at something like Revolut, which, you know, has really changed how people save money and use money, I think it's I think it's really clever. Um, Monzo in the UK, um, you know, has has a great customer empathy and experience. Um you know, so I, you know, I think there are lots of great examples of where you know people are doing amazing things. I think, particularly in the payment space, there are some really interesting, you know, innovations and, and different ways of providing, you know, personalised insights. So, you know, I, I look at a, a lot of the the fintechs, and there is always something you can learn from them. Whether it is a monoline in terms of providing service, or the way in which you know they use data to get insight into customers. You know, I, I think there's a lot to learn both from fintechs and big tech in terms of how they are um, changing the way customers behave and also the expectations that customers have. Are you considering buying any of them? Well, we, we will, um, you know, buy or partner. We recently made a, a small acquisition of a fintech called Rooster Money in the UK, which was part of our development of our youth strategy, um, where 
We've been increasing our our share of the youth market, young people opening accounts, but also, you know, as as they grow into students and then young professionals. And Rooster Money, you know, 130,000 customers, a great, you know, fintech and app for parents and children. Um, So we acquired them because it really fitted in with our strategy and filled a capability gap. And so Rooster Money is now part of NatWest and available to our customers and, you know, parents and children. It's a great a great way for them um, parents to have confidence about helping their kids learn how to save and use money but with the safeguards as well um, to do that so so we will acquire if it fits with our strategy or we'll partner if we think that's the right answer as well so natwist is the only place you have worked at that, that's correct yes that's i started as a started as a graduate and uh, yeah now the ceo which basically means, you know, what I marvel at is um, one is that, you know, today, of course, that's a very unconventional career path. Uh, but more importantly, what is it like to have learned all of your professional expertise from one institution? And what is the culture that existed at NatWest that helped you uh, rise through the ranks? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly it was certainly never my plan. Um, <laughs> so uh, like like most people, when I started uh, my career, I, I sort of expected to be there two, three, four years and then, you know, the next interesting challenge. And, you know, I think, you know, over the period that I've been there, NatWest has changed massively. It's a very very different organization. I feel like I've worked at 10 different organizations in the great great thing about working in a large organization is you can have 10 different careers with different roles as you develop. Um, But the culture has been one where it's always been, um, you know, the opportunity to have another interesting challenge. The culture is very collaborative. Um, It's a great team-based environment. And I've always been able to continue to accelerate and learn and develop and do, you know, interesting and challenging roles. And you know, uh, my my HR team always tell me off when I whenever I say this, but I I've never had a three, five, ten year plan. That's never been how I've um, run my career. I've been very fortunate that I've worked with great people and had great opportunities, and the opportunities inside have always been more attractive and more exciting and more compelling than the ones outside. And so that's why I've stayed. But I'm as surprised as anyone else um, that I've been there so long. That's very modest of you. Um, What is your advice to younger people and especially younger women um, who are trying to make a career, who are in the early stages of their career? And in your own case, um, has it helped to be assertive? Have you asked for opportunities? Have you asked for races? Um, Or, you know, and is that that, uh, an advisable thing? Yeah, I I mean, the advice I would always give to young women um, coming into, you know, any role, but particularly into the financial services sector, it is a really exciting place to be. But I would always say, just you must always be yourself. It is really... Um, you know, the, the the pressure to conform to a stereotype. There is no stereotype. You know, be yourself because you'll be brilliant because of all of those characteristics that make you you. So I would always encourage um, people to be themselves. I would always encourage them um, 
to continue to invest in themselves. I'm always learning. Even you know, today I'm I probably know less today than I knew um, before. So always invest in yourself and learn um, and work with you know find something you love and work with great people. I mean that really is the magic the magic formula. Um, you do have to be proactive. Um, you know there were definitely points early in my career where. I would expect someone to notice I was doing great things and and you have to you have to be proactive and you have to put your hand up and you know I I certainly at different points in my career have you know asked the stupid question or gone to find the interesting thing and said I really like this area can I come and work here and I you know you have to take a bit of risk and try new things and you learn about yourself and that's how you continually develop but the most important thing I would say is you know go for it find find something you love and and invest in yourself and work with great people and and that really is the magic formula I think if an organization manages to be a good workplace for you know, for all genders um there is greater value there as well what are the mistakes companies commonly make in this regard and what would be your advice to companies and managements to do better uh, in both these regards yeah i mean i think mo- most importantly you've got to you've got to nurture and develop your talent um and the culture of an organization is really a really important sticking point of why people come to work and i think particularly today for the younger generation they want to have meaning and value in the contribution they're making it's not just about the role and the job it is about what 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 does this contribute what am i adding value and i'm a great believer we spend a lot of time at work and i want to feel you know if i'm spending time at work away from my family away from my children you know that i am making a contribution and adding value and 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 that underpins for me a lot of our purpose led strategy people want to feel that the job that they do adds value and also allows them to develop their real potential and i think employers have to recognize the contribution that they're making they have to invest and nurture talent from start right the way through it's not something that you can just do and create an environment where people can really thrive and diversity and inclusion is a, is a huge part of that um one of the things as any leader of an organization that you you must avoid at all costs is groupthink um groupthink is is the killer of creativity and um, what you want is diversity of thought diversity of talent you want if everybody is from the same background the same religion the same gender the same economic environment you know you you will create a wonderfully reinforcing echo chamber what you want is that constructive challenge that diversity of thought you want your organization to reflect the society that you work in the customer base and therefore investing in developing your talent and particularly today with the world changing so much helping people reskill and you know we don't know what the jobs of the future are going to be but allowing people to make a contribution allowing them to be completely themselves and investing their potential means that you create the right culture the right organization and people want to come and work for you and they want to they can see the value that your organization is making so for me it's all about talent right and and, and what is your um management style like i mean you know in um uh, especially for your senior leadership um, what is your your style of review uh, what's your style in goal setting what are the paradigms uh, through which you run your immediate team and you know yeah it's 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 a very um it's a very team based culture um i i'm a great believer in you win and lose as a team so what 
what what you will see with my team is a a very common set of values um a, a an environment that's psychologically safe people should be allowed to challenge the status quo to have different viewpoints that's how you learn from each other um and you know a very flat structure um you know one of one of the great privileges i have is being the ceo but that is only for a short period of time you know at some point i will then hand on to someone else and you know my job is to hand it over in a better way um than i took it over that's that's part of what your contribution should be um but i'm you know very clear you know with my team we're driving for outcomes you know clear values you know we're very clear on what outcomes we want to meet reach we're we're ambitious so we won't reach all of them we'll make mistakes as we go and i think making sure that you create an environment where you foster collaboration innovation positive challenge will bring the best out of people but very clear expectations of outcomes tell us about the rose review um which is an exercise in um in figuring out um what is the status of or how much backing women entrepreneurs are getting uh, that's my understanding uh, but please tell us what is the exercise what did you find and and is it an ongoing uh, review process Yeah the Rose Review was a um a piece of research I undertook on behalf of the UK government into female entrepreneurship in the UK. And at, at NatWest one of the things that that I set up when I was running the commercial bank was free accelerators up and down the country to help entrepreneurs. I think for an entrepreneur starting a business it's the most difficult thing to do and actually creating an environment where you can help is is really important. What what we could see in the UK was that there were not there wasn't enough support for female entrepreneurs so i we the government commissioned a report which i led which looked at what the opportunity was and it was very much a data led we looked around the world where are the best countries what is the opportunity and if we could get parity with best in class what that would mean now the uk is an incredibly entrepreneurial country it's a great place for startups and there is no lack of talented women starting businesses but if we could get to parity it could contribute 260 billion to the economy in the uk So we then looked at what are the barriers facing female entrepreneurs achieve all their potential and the report looked into that and what we found were a number of things access and awareness of financing was really critical particularly equity finance and the really shocking statistic was only 1% of venture capital money was going to female led businesses and there were a number of reasons for that access and awareness um uh, female entrepreneurs have have a higher awareness of risk which can sometimes lead to them asking for less scale up capital there were less women starting businesses coming out of school young women than there were men um there was a disproportionate burden of parental and family care falling on female entrepreneurs and a lack of local and relatable role models and mentors that really makes a difference so we could see all of these barriers the report recommended interventions um which we have driven and I continue to drive that working with the UK government running a rose review board and committing um to changes that we make we now have 138 signatories to the investing in women's code which represents around a trillion pounds uh we've seen you know more young women starting business than ever before uh last year there were 140,000 businesses started by women in the UK 20% of businesses are now run by women and pleasingly and excitingly in the 18 to 24 year old um age bracket 
um, young women. We've seen almost uh, an eight times increase in the number of young women considering entrepreneurship and starting businesses. So there's progress, but there's still a lot to do. And underpinning it is this massive economic contribution because, of course, entrepreneurs create new businesses, they create jobs, they create new income for the economy. And so having a thriving entrepreneur community is really important. And so all of those who can help should help. So that is very much the work that I'm continuing to drive. Alison, uh, we now live in a world with a lot of uh, consciousness around ESG. Um, Tell us a little bit about what are your bank's initiatives in this regard and what are the initiatives by other maybe UK businesses that have uh, that you've been particularly impressed by? Yeah, we've made. I mean, ESG is is clearly important, and particularly the climate emergency is uh, is critical. We've made climate change and climate transition a core part of NatWest Group's strategic priority. Um, we have when we approach it in three ways: one, um, ending harmful activity; two, getting our own operations in order; and three, funding and financing the transition. So, I've committed. Um, to halve the emissions from our financing on our balance sheet over the next decade and committed $100 billion of financing to funding and financing the transition, of which um, we've already funded $20 billion of that. So I think it's really important that... You know, we're talking about a global rewiring of the economy into a low carbon economy. Um, that's going to require extensive collaboration across public and private sector between developed and developing nations at the political and economic level. So I sit on a number of policy groups globally to help drive that. You know, NatWest was the sponsor of COP26. And and pleasingly, you know, I think there is real collaboration across the finance sector, the asset finance sector, um, the insurance sector and government to really try and drive this change. This is not a competitive sport. No one can achieve this on their own. We've all got to address this. It's probably the biggest challenge that we will face. And it's really important that everyone plays their part in in addressing this climate emergency. Alison, uh, you're the banker to the Queen Has she ever called you uh, complaining about some aspect of her banking experience? Well, Coots is the largest private bank um, and obviously um, we do have lots of uh, very prestigious customers, but we never talk about our customers. (laughs) Private is uh, is the main thing about private banking, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, Who is going to be the next British Prime Minister? Um, I don't know. I mean, we're in the middle of the uh, leadership uh, competition at the moment. That's for uh, Conservative Party to vote on. Um, but by the 5th of September, we should have a, a new prime minister. Any any thoughts on the candidate that India watches particularly because he's of Indian origin, Rishi Sunak? Well, Rishi Sunak is, um, uh, you know, a fantastic um, uh, candidate. Um, uh, I worked very closely with him during the global pandemic, and he did some incredible things in terms of supporting the economy. and And we're very lucky to have have had him as chancellor. Um, and obviously, he's a very strong candidate. So um, I, I wish him well. Wonderful! It's been a real delight. Thank you so much for joining the sketch, and I hope you have a great stay in India. Thank you very much. That's it from me for this episode. You've been listening to The Sketch. This episode was edited by Gopika Gopakumar, Mok Sharma as the producer of this show, and Sanju V. Abraham is our sound engineer. You can email us with your thoughts on thesketch at livemint.com. For more updates on this podcast, follow HT Smartcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. 
To listen to more such Mint podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com. Goodbye and thanks for listening. This was a Mint production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast.